Bible or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25. Um, so we've been working through 1 Samuel over the course of several months now. Um, and, and really, at, at this end kind of, of, this, of this book, what we're seeing is a cat and mouse game, right? We have Saul um, hunting David. So Saul is the current king. We are, we're transitioning away from the judges into a monarchy in Israel. Saul is the king, but the throne um, ultimately has been taken from him. His descendants won't receive it. Um, David has been anointed his successor. He'll be the new king, and it'll be his line and lineage that will follow. Um, and Saul, who has been ministered to by David, who has been soothed by David, who has had victories won um, militarily by David, now is wanting to kill David, um, has tried to, in his presence, who has been hunting him. And David is basically in the wilderness with several hundred men um, seeking to continue to kind of serve because he's, he's watching out. He's gone in and rescued cities, um, but they're basically running and fleeing from the king who wants him dead. And so last week we saw this strange scene where David has an opportunity to kill Saul um, and instead cuts off a corner of his robe. And then as, the, as Saul leaves, um, holds it up and says, look, I'm not trying to kill you. I don't, you, have, you are bringing evil against me. I'm not bringing evil against you. And Saul, at least momentarily, repents and is sorry about this and, and says, you have brought good instead of evil. Um, and, and so we're going to pick up as we continue to, to watch this, this scene of David's rise to power, of Saul's um, really kind of deconstruct, deconstruction. Um, and so let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 25. Um, now Samuel died, and all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And so we just have this quick aside that Samuel, um, who has risen as, as a prophet, as a leader, um, who had brought the nation together really as, as the last judge and one that had a national voice, has now passed away. And so what had kind of been a, a, a guiding force, um, a little bit of um, stability in the midst of a lot of chaos, Samuel has now died. He's being mourned across the nation. And so we'll pick up in verse 2. So David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the, man, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved, and he was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men... And David said to the young men, Go to Carmel, and go to Nabil, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They've missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabil in the name of David, and then they waited. 
All right, we're going to pause there for just a second. So we, we have this scene that, that David and his men have been out in the wilderness, and they've basically been guarding some of the, the local businessmen's flocks. And they've provided protection and security. And, and now there's a feast has come. When you have um, the, the shearing season, it was, it was a season of work, but it was also a season of festivity. And so there would have been feasts um, and excitement and enthusiasm. And so David and his men are basically like, hey, we would like to participate in, this, in the feast. Um, and so they go to one of the men who they've helped protect his flocks to make sure that he has continued to gain in, in wealth. And they're like, would you, would you provide some sustenance for us? Right? Not long. He's not asking to be on the payroll. He's not asking for them to feed them moving forward. He's saying we want to be able to feast as, as, as is everyone else. And so we're introduced to this businessman, Nabal, um, and we're just told, listen, um, he's harsh. He's badly behaved. Right? That he's, he's not going to be a difficult, he's not going to be an easy man to work with. And it's contrasted with his wife, right? Who was discerning and beautiful. So you can't, I mean, it's, it's, we've got a big contrast here. This beautiful, discerning woman and this harsh and badly behaved man, right? You're thinking, man, I've seen some marriages like that. Um, we're not going to point fingers, anything like that, all right? Um, and so they're, they're asking for hospitality. And remember that in the Middle East, still to this day, hospitality is a huge component of society and culture. Right, that, that you're, you're talking a harsh environment where hospitality, bringing someone in, even a stranger, and caring for their needs could be the difference between life and death. This isn't simply entertaining. Right? This is potentially a life and death situation. And we see in Numbers 20 and in Deuteronomy 23 that when some of the nations were not hospitable to the people of God, right, that God brought judgment on them for not caring for His people and, and, and showing hospitality. We've seen that even in 1 Samuel, that one of the enemies that they're fighting, it's a reminder of when we came from Egypt, they didn't take care of you. They made it difficult on you. And that's not what they should have done. That's not what our culture does. Um, when Carmen and I were in Yemen, there would be days we, we'd be walking down the street, right? And a, a vehicle would pull up beside us, and someone would roll down their window and say, have you eaten? And we're like, what? Come to our home. They didn't know us from Adam, right? But they're like, you're a guest in our country. You're obviously not Yemeni. Get in the van and come to our home. Now listen, if that was to happen this afternoon, right? If, if your kids are out and a van pulls up and says, hey, come over to my house for supper, you would expect your kid to scream and run, right? Like to draw attention and to not do that. But, but in the Middle Eastern context, we often got in the van, like, and it wasn't at gunpoint, it wasn't like we were, like, that the culture was built that we care for a guest. They have a saying that, that they would say, I, I would die for my guest over my brother, right? Like, just this idea of that hospitality is, is rich and it's meaningful. And, and so David is asking for hospitality for his people. Let's pick up in verse 10. And Nabil answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, 
every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword, and David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. Right? Like, stories turn in a hurry. That basically you can hear the contempt in the Bill's voice, right? That he's like, hey, I don't know this guy. He could be anybody. And, And he's basically, he's not just saying no. He could have said no, but he's showing contempt. Right? He knows what David has done. He knows what David's men have done. He knows that they haven't lost any sheep, that their shepherds have been taken care of. But you can just hear the stinginess in his voice. My bread, my water, my meat, my shares, like, I, it's mine. I'll give it to who I want to give it to. And he insults David. He insults his men and his honor. And so there's a part of you that might go, man, David responded rashly. Like, man, why would you hear a no and go, hey, strap up, guys, we're going. Right? Like, put on your swords, and 400 men are willing to throw on their swords and go up to meet this man. And it's because you're in an honor and shame culture, right, where there was an expectation of hospitality. And in in the American context, right, we're we're a justice people. We're a right and wrong people. But in the Middle East and in some other areas of the world, the culture is not driven by right and wrong. It's driven by honor and shame. And what brings honor to our family or what brings shame to our family. And right, and the only way that you can restore honor is sometimes is through violence, right? It's to show I have been dishonored, and so I'm going to restore honor by defeating the one who brought shame. And so you see David responding like this. So now we have him and 400 men going to meet this businessman. Let's pick up in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabil's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband to Bill. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by mourning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. So you can see that David is, is riled up, to say the least. And they're going to war. I mean, they're going to defeat this man. And you can tell that Nabil is not, not just having a bad day. This is who he is. It's his character. That his servants even right go to the wife and say, listen, we just heard how your husband spoke to David and his men. I want you to know the real story, the real situation. And this is about to get ugly. Like, we're... We're just telling you they're going to destroy us because of how your husband treated them. And you know that no one can talk to your husband. He's a worthless man. Like, 
Right? You don't go to someone's wife and call him a worthless man if he hasn't been worthless for a real long time. Right? Like, like if this is like a potential just disagreement, right? She's not going to side with you. And yet she doesn't go, really, Nabil? Are we talking about the same man? Like she's willing to immediately, right? She just gets after it. Right? Verse 18. So Abigail made haste. And so she begins, like they're already preparing a feast because it's that time. Um, they're preparing for the shears, those who are doing the work for them. And she doesn't ask for permission. She just begins to make preparations, right? The amount of food is significant when you think of 200 loaves, but we're talking for four to 600 men, right? So it's a lot of food, but it's not sustaining them beyond really a meal or two. And so she is bringing... Right? Hopefully a peace, peace offering. But I think it's important for us also to note here that David is not perfect. Right? That this is probably um, a little over the top. And that we're reminded that David is not going to be king because he has somehow figured it all out and is perfect, but because God has called him to this. And, and the Scriptures allow us to see both the, the good and the bad. We've seen that in Saul, and we're seeing that now in David as well. All right, so let's um, pick up in verse 23, because right, like, as, as the tension is building, um, really Abigail is acting in a scandalous manner because she's on her way to meet this man who's not her husband with food that belongs to her husband to try to save her worthless husband's life, right? And so she is out and doing this and is going to meet them in the wilderness. Let's pick up in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabil for his name, for as his name is, so is he. Nabil is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let the enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabil. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done according to my Lord all that the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me from this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly, by morning there had been none left to Nabil, so much as one male. 
And then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And so we have this dramatic scene, right, where this woman um, in the cover of dark, right, she meets him out in the wilderness, and she gets off her donkey. She's got all the provisions, and she gets down on her face, and she bows before David, right, in in this act of humility, and just begins to speak, right? Of peace, of wisdom, of discernment, of perspective, right? She is reminding him of like, look, don't take salvation in your hands. Right? Don't, don't take guilt upon yourself, right? You're going to be king. Don't go on to the throne with this on your head that you have acted rashly. Right? And she, she just begins to say, like, look, God is going to do for you what He says He would do. And she, you can tell that she knows David. She knows his story. She knows where he is going and what he has been done. Because listen to how she words this um, in verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you, he's being pursued right by Saul, and seek your life. Listen to the language. She says, the, your life will be bound up in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Basically, she has this idea of like firewood. She's like, you're one of the sticks in the middle, and God's carrying around the bundle. You are secure in His arms. You are safe. You are one of the living bundled up in the hands of God, even as those who would pursue your life. Like she is speaking about His literal situation. And then listen to what He says, in the lives of your enemies, look at the language here, she shall, He shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. What is she reminding him of, but of Goliath? Like, your enemies will fall before you, and it won't be by your hand. It'll be by the hand of God who is going to guide and protect and keep you secure. He's going to make a way. Right? We have just seen David not take the life of Saul, who's tried to kill him multiple times. And now he's been insulted by this one man, and he's willing to act rashly. When she references Nabil's name, it had to have been a nickname. Right, because the name means fool. And most likely a mom's not going to name her son fool. Right? But that he has become known as a fool and that people would even um, reference and call him by this name. And so she says, listen, that is who my husband is. But you don't need to act in that manner. Listen, she's taking her life in her hand with 400 men headed for war knowing there's more um, spoils available. And yet David hears her and hears the word. And and listen to what he says, verse 32. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and working salvation with my own hand. David is still learning, right, how to be a king. He's learning that and trusting that the Lord will bring vengeance for him. All right, but Abigail still has to return home to a husband that she, in some sense, has betrayed. Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabil, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabil's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk, and she told him nothing at all until the morning light. So we can see that he had enough to share, right? He is feasting, he is eating, he is drunk. He's pretending to be a king. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabil, his wife told him these things, 
and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Most likely he had a stroke. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabil, and he died. And when David heard that Nabil was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabil. And he kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabil on his own head. And David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, and said, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried, rose, and mounted a donkey, and five young women attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took a Hinnanoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was at Gallium. So we kind of have some, some kind of concluding thoughts here, right? That, that Abigail gets back, and Nabil is, is acting as the fool that he is. And when he hears the news, right, he hears that what he attempted to keep from happening has happened, right? He has a stroke. He dies a week and a half later. And in the end, David is going to take Abigail as a wife. Right? It, it, it is a, a significant and, and strange turn of events. Um, it's important for us to note that in a lot of times these narrative sections of Scripture, there are things that are being described to us that aren't being prescribed to us. Like it is telling us how it happened, what happened. It's not saying, and thus go and do. Right? That we, we can see in Scripture that the, the heartbeat of Scripture is one man and one woman. It's not polygamy. Right? When, when Jesus is asked why Moses allowed for divorces, right? He says, because of your hard heart. Right? Like, yeah, there were things that were culturally acceptable that were not according to the will of God because of your sin and your hardness. And so we see a lot of men taking a lot of women and a lot of concubines in Scripture. That is not a way of saying, thus go and do. It is simply describing to us what took place um, at this point. So, I want us to consider verse 31. Right? That salvation is not by our own hand. I think for a lot of us, we, we know that intellectually, that salvation is not in our own hand and yet we look to control the narrative. That through our own action, our own obedience, um, we feel like we can merit salvation. Through our morality, that we can somehow gain God's approval because we're a good person. Um, that some um, would even look at the, their nationality or their skin color and assume that it just is an inherent virtue of being an American, like that you just are Christian. Um, this is probably less so now than it, it once was, but it's it's still an idea that's been out there. Um, that maybe having the right knowledge about Jesus and being able to say, I believe there is a God, or I believe that Jesus died and went to the cross, like that those knowledge is enough for salvation. And yet, we know that it's not a knowledge-based thing, it's not a morality-based thing, it's not a nationality, it's not a merit. It is trusting that Jesus is sufficient. That His life and His death and His resurrection right make us right with Jesus, that restore us to the Father. Consider Abigail, right? That she goes and in her humility, 
that she did not have to offer, right, bows down before David, who's coming to bring death and destruction. And it says that she presented herself as guilty. Listen, she says in verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Right? She's saying like, let the guilt and the offense be on me. So she is showing humility, taking the guilt when she was innocent, and she ends up bringing salvation for the whole household other than Nabil, right? That they're rescued. The servants don't die because of her action, her wisdom. Church, would we be reminded in Abigail's story, right, of a greater one, that Jesus came in humility. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? Like this idea that Jesus humbled himself in coming to us. Like that he comes as a servant. Right? Not... Right, and, and so we see humility in one who did not have to be humble, coming before the one who was acting rash. And then not only is he humble, right, he takes guilt. Consider Second Corinthians five, verse twenty one. For our sake he made him to be sin, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That, that Jesus shows humility to those who are looking to sin. He then takes guilt that isn't His because He's innocent. He becomes sin, right? And, and it absorbs the wrath of God so that we don't, right? We receive mercy instead of wrath because of Jesus' humility and willingness to be the sacrifice for our sin for our guilt that was ours rightly and wasn't His, to secure salvation. Listen to how Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Right, That we see a, a, a kind of a precursor to Jesus' gospel here in 1 Samuel 25 and that Abigail's humility, guilt, and bringing salvation in, the, in a momentary situation of life to our family that we see in Jesus, that we are reminded that it was in His humility, His sacrifice, taking our guilt, that He has brought salvation to us all, that it is not by our hand, our merit, our ability, our morality. It is by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That we have hope, that we have peace, that we have salvation. And so this morning... When you have been like Nabil, right, stingy, selfish, when you've been like Saul, rash, vindictive, jealous, when you've been like David, looking to take your salvation and your circumstances in your own hands, would we be reminded that Jesus is offering us salvation? He's offering us hope and peace and belonging and saying, listen, no matter what you've done to try to secure your way, I'm offering you a better one. I will take you back to the throne room of the Father. I will give you access back to God through my life, my death, and my resurrection. Jesus saves fools like Nabil. 
He saves boasters, right? Like David in this scene. He saves the prideful. As long as you are breathing, you are not too far gone. The grace and love of Jesus is offered to you to know and to trust and to find salvation and security. And then I want us to look at just one, one final concept here um, in, in the last couple of chapters. Remember, David is drawn crowds, right? He ran away from the throne, from Jonathan, from Saul, out into the wilderness, and the, those on the fringes of society have just surrounded him, right? Like it, it's been from a few hundred to 400 to 600. Like that they've come out to him, that he has not been alone. We've seen Jonathan, the king's son, come to him in multi, a multitude of times to encourage him, to strengthen him, right? And we've seen Abigail here, right? David is not an island to himself. I, I think it's dangerous sometimes to believe like men like Peter or Paul or David, like they just did it because they were just better than us. David is not on his own, and he is not doing this by himself. He is surrounded by people who are supporting him and loving him and encouraging him. Church, would we be reminded that we are created for community? Right? We see this in Genesis when, when God is speaking in the, in the Godhead, in the Trinity, he says, let us make man in our image. Right? Like, that he is bringing us into community. We are headed for community. When we look at Revelation, we're invited to a, a wedding banquet. Right? There's this feast language right, that is communal in nature. And that the church itself is a people, not a person. It is a group of people becoming family and pursuing Jesus. David, it is revealed in 1 Samuel, needs community. He's being encouraged in one of the most difficult seasons of his life as he struggles literally for his life, as he's wondering if the promises of God are going to come true, as he's living in the wilderness with no place to lay his head, he is surrounded by others who are willing to go to battle for him, to go to battle with him, to encourage him, we, we, we saw that others were willing to take his parents on, right, and to care for them as they were elderly so that Saul wouldn't kill them. Like that people are helping him in practical, practical tangible ways. In 1 Samuel 23, 16, right, Jonathan finds him in the wilderness simply to encourage him, right, to strengthen his hand in the Lord and to say, listen, my dad's wrong and the Lord is faithful and he's going to do what he promised he would do. And you're going to be king, so be encouraged. Don't fear. Right? He finds him in the midst of a time of need, and he does this. And Abigail then meets David in his sin, in his rashness, before he commits greater sin. And listen, he doesn't let his pride... Think about this for a moment. Right? David has a woman that he doesn't know stop him in the wilderness as he's armed with 400 other dudes who are ready for war... And she's like, please don't do this. Please don't do this. I brought a gift. Don't take the Lord's job into your hand. It would not have been difficult in that moment for David's pride to say, you're not listening to a woman. Like, he's insulted me. Your husband's insulted me. Right? He doesn't let his pride lead him into further sin. He is receptive to her. Right? The deliverance comes through a strong woman. Right? Giving him wisdom and encouragement and a reminder of the promises of God. 
he receives it. Remember, Saul so far is just spiritually dense. He doesn't turn to God ever. Right? Like he doesn't, his, his first instinct isn't into the spiritual. And so when he's confronted and given opportunities to repent, he's dense. David, when given an opportunity to not continue on a, a sin path, he receives it. He stops. And he responds faithfully as, a, as one who is receptive. And so would we be reminded of this this morning, church? We need community. It's not just because, like, you know, that's sweet, that's what we talk Like, we need it. Church, we need a place to belong. Like, we need a people, right, that we are being knit together as family. And so whether your family of origin, right, is a train wreck, you need, you need a church family. If your family of origin is a gift from God and one of the greatest blessings in your life, you need community. Right? We are called to walk together pursuing Jesus. We are not islands unto ourselves. We need community because we need friends like Jonathan and Abigail. You need men and women in your life like these two who will speak truth, who will strengthen your hand in the Lord, who will call you on your sin and point you to Jesus. Jonathan, who had done it for years, Abigail, who did it in her first meeting, right, at great personal risk to herself. We need community because we're called to live out the one another's of Scripture together. Right? We need each other in order to do that, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to bear with one another, to serve one another, to love one another. We need a place to be known. Listen, in chapters 24 and 25 last week, David comes off looking really good. He has an opportunity to kill the king. Right? And his men are encouraging him to do it. They're even using prophetic words to encourage him. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what God has for me. Like he looks in control. In chapter 25, he looks a little crazy. He's kind of rash. And, and you can, man, is, is the time in the wilderness catching up with you? Like, why are you ready to strap on the sword because the dude wouldn't give you party food, right? Like, we see David in the good and the bad. We see him when he's strong and when he's weak. We see him when he's wise and when he's foolish. And because he's known... He's able to be ministered to in both. Listen, church, you can be one of two things. You can be impressive or you can be known. You can't be both. I can't tell you how many times like I'm tempted to not share what's really going on in my heart because I want to control the narrative of how I'm perceived. And if I tell you that I'm struggling with parenting, if I tell you that I'm struggling with someone's response to me, if I tell you that I'm struggling in pursuing Jesus, right? And then I'm like, ah, now what are they going to think of me? We need community because we need people to know us. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the boring. All of it. Because when we're known, when we're known, right, people can encourage us. They can strengthen our hand in the Lord as Jonathan did. They can call us on our sin like Abigail did. And in both of them, they're pointing us to Jesus. It's real life. You don't have it all together all the time. And if no one knows you in the brokenness and the weakness, then we're not walking in community. Right? Community, we need it as a place to belong, a place to be known, a place to find friends like this, to live out the one another's, to serve 
one another because we need grace. It's a place to be generous and hospitable with one another. James reminds us that it's a place where we run after people and their sin because the grace of God runs beyond it. And he says, listen, like you can stop someone from walking off the edge when you pursue them in their sin because the grace of Jesus meets them there. But if no one knows your personal sin or struggle or issue, you may run off the edge because there's no one to know to run after you. That we've got to walk together. So we need it. And here's the last thing. Community reveals something. It reveals the power of the Gospel. Think about this. When there is unity, despite all the internal and external differences that we have, only the Gospel can do that. Like we live in a world right now that feels like it's on fire. Like that everyone is looking for every way to divide and to be different and to hate each other. And there are legitimate differences in the way that we think about almost everything. And so when there is unity in a group of any substantial size at all, it is the power of the gospel that has brought that, especially when people are being vulnerable and honest and known. Listen, it's the power of the gospel displayed in peace. We are not calling us all to be the same. You don't have to have the same ministry focuses, right? Like the, the, the ministry, things that you love the most. You don't have to have the same emphasis in your life. Um, you don't have to school your kids the same way. You don't, have to, you don't have to work. Like We're not talking about sameness. We're talking about unity and peace. I, like the, the power of the gospel to bind us together in that. This is an opportunity for us to walk in the humility that Jesus displayed in Philippians 2. Right? That we, we get to show humility and deference to one another. It's the power of the gospel in unity. It's the power of the gospel in peace. And it's the power of the gospel to deepen relationships. So there is trust. Listen, when you go to a wedding, and a man and a woman stand up there, and they share, right? Hey, I love you. Right? They don't read off a checklist of, as long as you do this. Right? There's no checklist. Of I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It is a promise. It is a covenant of loving them. And yet, here's the thing. They know each other's baggage and their junk and the ugly. Listen, church, God knows your junk and your baggage and the ugly and the brokenness. And He has covenanted to love you. And we see that displayed in marriage, but we also see it displayed in the church. It is we know each other we know when you've been rash, when you've been stingy, when you've been foolish, when you didn't love Jesus, when you did love Jesus, when things were ugly, when things were less than ideal. And we trust each other with that. I don't have to be impressive. I get to be known because there's grace. And grace covers our sin. And then we begin to deepen trust and we deepen relationships that I can be known here. I don't have to have everything put together. Like it's okay not to be okay because we're running hard after Jesus and He is transforming us bit by bit, day by day. And one of the ways that He does that besides His Word and His Spirit is through one another. He does it with, it, with us in deep relationship. The power to live in this sort of community 
is offered by Jesus because it's a little bit terrifying, right? Like I would rather, right, sometimes I, if I'm honest, I would rather be impressive or even not impressive but just not known, right? Like just, he's an enigma, right? Like we don't know him. Like, like that sometimes sounds better. But Jesus has called us to be family. David needed it. We need it. He has torn down all the dividing walls that, that um, separate us. This is Ephesians 2. All we need to be family in Christ is Jesus. Listen, it is this beautiful thing that we can wax eloquently and poetically about. But in reality, it's really messy. And it's really difficult. And our rough edges get bumped into a lot. But it's worth it. And so our calling and our encouragement is that we would do that together as family. That we would walk together beyond Sunday morning relationships Right to become the family that God has called us to, displaying the power of the gospel to the world around us, knowing that they will be intrigued by what could unite people when everyone's not united, that we get to say it's Jesus who became sin for us. And in his life, his death, and his resurrection, we have hope, peace, and salvation. Let's pray. Father, would you this morning... Lord, would you stir an appetite um, in us for biblical community? God, that is filled by you, that is driven by you, that is powered by you. We need you. Father, would we not replace you with community, God, but would we not run from it either? God, that you've called us to walk together, trusting you. or that we would pick one another up as we stumble, that we would get to the end as a family, trusting, knowing loving you. Father, thank you that you put Jonathan's and Abigail's in our life. God, would you give us the pride to respond, the, the, the humility to respond not in our pride as David did to Abigail, or that he would repent when it was offered. Lord, would you speak your church's listen? Jesus.